May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I want to focus on the reading from the Book of Lamentations, but I feel I do need to make just a few comments on the reading from the Gospel according to Luke first. After suggesting that the faith of his disciples was so diminished that it wasn't even yet equal to the size of a mustard seed, Jesus adds a teaching that seems to suggest that they really shouldn't be looking for so much as a word of thanks or acknowledgement for anything they do manage to do in the name of Christ. Who among you, he says to them, would say to your servant or your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table. In other words, what landowner in the world would see that as a prudent way to run the farm? They'd be inclined to say something more like, get me my supper, thank you very much, you can have yours later. So it is with you also, Jesus adds, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. He sounds just a little bit hard-hearted here, doesn't he? Yet I think this is actually a bit of a trick question, the true answer to which will only be revealed a little later in the Gospel narrative. Now, what was his question again? Who among you would say to your servant, who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, Come, come here at once, take your place at the table. Honestly, he's saying to the disciples, who among you would do that? None of them would dream of doing it if they were that wealthy. But Jesus himself would. Jesus actually does. It's just a few chapters further into this same gospel that he asks them, Who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves the table? Is it not the one at the table? Again, a little bit of a setup. And then he adds, But I am among you as the one who serves. He serves them bread and wine in the upper room. And in John's telling, he even drops to his knees, washes their feet, and forever changes their status from servant to friend. Now, I'll just leave all of that there to percolate with you. You can maybe even look at that text again this week with those words about worthless slaves, don't ask for any thanks. Just let it sit in that big picture because I do really want to move on to this passage from Lamentations. Now, if you've never read this book through in its entirety, I'd encourage you to do that. Maybe sometime this week you could reread the Gospel and then read the whole five chapters of Lamentations, though I would warn you that it doesn't make for particularly comfortable reading. It's written by the prophet Jeremiah as an extended lament over what he's seen happening to the city of Jerusalem at the hands of its Babylonian conquerors. It's unrelenting in its portrayal of a kind of a nightmare scene on the streets. It opens with the words, 
How lonely sits the city that was once full of people. And for five chapters, Jeremiah offers image after hellish image of just how bad it's become. For example, he says, Look, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have borne? Which suggests that things had become so desperate that people were actually turning to cannibalism. Should priest and prophet be killed in the very sanctuary of the Lord, in, in, in the holy place? The young and old, he says, are lying on the ground in the streets. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. In Jeremiah's view, the disaster that has beset Jerusalem in all of its horror is actually the outcome of the nation's abandonment of their covenant faithfulness. And so he says, On the day of your anger, Lord, you have killed them, slaughtering without mercy. His understanding is that God has allowed the enemy, Babylonians, this horrific free reign in the streets. Chapters 1 through 4 of Lamentations are very carefully constructed, acrostic poems. Yet the fifth and the final chapter is not, which leads the theologian philosopher Walter Buzard to wonder if this fifth chapter now reflects what he calls a grief so unbearable and chaotic that it cannot be controlled either by form or liturgy. Poetic acrostic no longer holds the grief. That last chapter, that fifth chapter, includes some of the most troubling imagery. Jeremiah writes, Women are raped in Zion, virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind. What that means is that the Babylonians had taken the, the work animals, the oxen and the donkeys, off of the grinding stones and strapped the young Israelite men there in their place to work like animals. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men have left their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. And it all ends with this. Why, Lord, have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us these many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Unless, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Restore us. Renew us unless, and this is Jeremiah's deepest fear, unless you, O Lord, have utterly rejected us, unless you are angry with us beyond measure. That's it. That's how the five-chapter book ends. For people who read and pray the Psalms, you'll know that normally what happens with a lament 
is that it begins with some expression of agony or cry for help. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it resolves over the course of the psalm with an expression of trust or of faithful thanksgiving, as if simply by crying out in need, as if simply by giving voice to the pain, God is already present and at work in a broken heart or a broken people. That's the way the psalms, the laments, usually work. Here in his lamentations, though, Jeremiah does something quite different. He's unable to end his poetic cycle with anything other than that fearful unless. What if we've gone too far this time? Not while the horror is yet happening in Jerusalem Street. He can't use any other ending. Yet his work is not without hope. Jeremiah's affirmation of something other than the horror is embedded right at the book's core. That's what we heard read aloud. Right in the middle of the third of these five agonizing chapters, even as the tears run down his face, it's almost as if Jeremiah can't stop himself from singing this other song, if only for a few verses. You can picture him with his head down and his heart broken. He doesn't want to look at what's happening in the streets anymore. And he writes, The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And his head begins to lift. And therefore I have hope. It's almost out of stubbornness at this point. His eyes have become fixed not on the fires burning in the streets of Jerusalem, nor on the rubble of what was once the temple, nor on the hollow eyes of the women who have become so desperate as to do anything to survive. No, his eyes are fixed on a horizon he'd not seen in so very, very long. And he begins to sing. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. Where are you looking, Jeremiah? What are you seeing that no one else in that desolate city can see? And he continues... The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It goes on like that for a half dozen verses more, ending with a bold assertion that the Lord does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. But watch. Jeremiah's head again lowers. His shoulders slump. He's lost sight of that grand horizon. And he returns to the deeper, harder work of lament. A lament that continues through the second half of his book. I'd ask yourself, why why is it that we read texts from a book like this? 
And what's with my insistence that we didn't just read the nice stuff without that background story, without the nightmare from which this good stuff somehow emerges? You might have otherwise remained oblivious to the horrors of Jerusalem if I hadn't told you about it. You could have just listened to those wonderful words about the steadfast love of the Lord never ceasing. Well, we read from a book like this because while most of us will never see, thankfully, our city streets in flames, nor have hostile soldiers pull us from our homes to do with us whatever they will, that is the current reality for many in our world. Right now, in Syria... Right now, in communities in Afghanistan and Iraq, that's what's happening. Right now, tonight. And some in those places may have words to pray, to pray their own laments in the midst of it, but many won't. And a few might find the words or the will to affirm something like the steadfastness of the love of the Lord, but very few. And so here, thousands of miles away, we give voice to that love and to that hope, to that horizon on their behalf. We speak words that they can't find. And some here in this place tonight sit under the weight of a sadness or a loneliness, depression or a hopelessness, and it is for them too that we have to proclaim these words, that horizon that Jeremiah glimpses just for a minute in the midst of it all. If you're one of those who struggles and you can't risk hoping, let us hope and believe for you tonight. And remember, too, that Jeremiah could only sustain his astonishing hope for that brief time before he again buckled under the weight of all that he saw, all that he feared. If you find yourself buckling a little bit tonight under the weight of whatever it is you bear, know that one of the greatest prophets of our tradition knew that so very often there are no easy answers or quick-fix solutions. Yet he still found a voice to sing in the midst of it all. He discovered in fact, that he had a mustard seed of faith left in his soul. And that when he raised his head, he could sing, if only for a time, that alternative song. In that tiny mustard seed-sized faith, and maybe even with his jaw set and his teeth gritted, The prophet Jeremiah could dare to proclaim that God's mercies are new every morning. Pray that the morning will come in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in the lives of people here who are feeling broken, in the lives of those in our circles who are feeling overburdened. Pray that the morning will come to all who know only the deep and fearful loneliness of a long night, and on their behalf dare to say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Amen.